morning. Hey, did you hear that? Somebody's leg grew an inch. That's just kind of not normal, is it? <laughs> and uh, somebody's neck was set free. You know, we were, we were looking at Ephesians, weren't we? And we saw what Paul was praying. He said, hey, look, I want you to know more about this God. And one of the things, in fact, Kate read it this morning, uh, this immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And he was praying that God would bring revelation of that. What, what do you think this was? Revelation of the greatness of God. I think we should just say thank you to Jesus, don't you? Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Lord, we just worship you. We thank you. That is evidence of the kingdom of God coming among us. And we love it, Lord Jesus. We are so grateful that you pour out your goodness among us. We bless you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Amen. It's really important, I think, to say thank you when God does something wonderful among us. Okay, can I ask you please to open your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, that would be really, really helpful. And um, yeah, Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read through the first 16 verses. It will also come up on the screen here as well. They, there's a snappy title to my preach, The Urgency of Unity and Maturity in Today's Church. There you go. <laughs> That's one to remember. <clears throat> okay, let's read this together. I therefore, a prisoner... Uh, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, but he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth, and he who uh, descended is the one who also ascended far above uh, all the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds uh, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Awesome. That's amazing. To the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Wow. Okay. Well, look, if you were here last week, you'll know that Terry Virgo was with us. Thanks, Mara. And um, it's uh, never an enviable uh, job for a preacher to, to follow on from Terry, but I'll give it a go. <coughs> And uh, Terry was here, and he, he started to look at the subject of unity, didn't he? Do you remember? 
Hello, yes, good, good, good. I like people awake. That's excellent. The odd nod is good from the back. Very good. And so today I'm going to carry on with this uh, examination of this subject of unity. Now, look, there are obvious benefits to unity, aren't there? But actually what we're going to see is this. This is why uh, unity is so essential. We need unity amongst us to reflect, actually, accurately who God is to the world. That's one of the reasons we need unity. We need unity because the Psalms tell us that uh, it creates a context into which God can bless. Yes? Hello? Yeah? God blesses us when there's unity. And actually, we need an environment where people can mature and grow. And unity is needed for that. So today, what we're going to do is try and find out what Christian unity actually is, but also what it isn't. Because I think there's probably quite a lot of misunderstanding now around this idea of unity. Now, the other thing that's really important with any passage of Scripture that you look at is to try and understand what the original writer was saying to the original audience. Okay? That's kind of a, a really important lesson when you're reading your Bible, to sort of get to the, the base. And then once you've understood that, then you can sort of apply it to 21st century Britain and to us. Okay? So um, it's really important then for us to understand something of the history surrounding Ephesus around the first century. So today I'm going to start with history. Okay? And we're just going to have a look at this. So I'm asking you, will you come back with me? We're going to go back 2,000 years. And we're going to land. Okay? We're up in the air. And now we're going to land in Ephesus. Okay, we're now in the city of Ephesus, first century. And uh, we're going to take a look at this church that Paul is writing to. And one of the things I think we would have seen is this. That this church is made up of two very distinctly different groups. You have, uh, uh, many of the locals would have had a very Greek mindset. They would have thought in a very Greek kind of way. And the reason for that is because Ephesus was part of which empire? The Greek empire, absolutely, which was founded by Alexander the Great, absolutely. And he created this enormous empire from Greece, modern-day Greece, all the way through to India. Massive, massive lump of territory. And over the years, what happens is that all of those people began to think in a very sort of similar way, in a very Greek way. And they have a very particular way of seeing the world. The other group, of course, were who? The Jews. There was a, there was a very significant Jewish community living in Ephesus. Because what had been happening is a number of people from Israel had been coming out of Israel and settling in a number of communities all over the known world. And Ephesus was one of those places where they had settled. So you have these two groups of people, uh, cheek by jowl, in this city. Now, the thing is, both of those groups thought they were better than the other one. So the Greeks, this is a little example for you, the Greeks broke the world down into two basic people groups. You were either Greek, you're one of us, and by that they meant sophisticated, educated, rather superior, or you were a barbarian. Yes, so you're either one of us, sophisticated, or you're a savage. 
Those are the two choices that you've got. You can see how they look down on everyone else. The Jews, though, also broke the world down into two basic people groups, didn't they? You were either Jewish, you were descended from Abraham, you were part of this great covenant which made you the people of God, or you were a Gentile. Actually, often the Bible refers to Jew and Greek. And the reason is because so many of the, the Gentiles had a Greek way of thinking. So it's often Jew and Greek. Okay, so, and uh, what happened with these two was that they, uh, because they were so different, tension began to build up for a whole bunch of different reasons. For example, the, the Greeks worshipped the body beautiful. Have you seen Greek statues of muscly men and beautiful women? They thought the body was amazing. So here were these, these Jews who had come along, and they, they circumcised their boys. You're, 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 what are you doing cutting bits off a human body? They thought that was horrible. What are, you, what are you doing that for? The Jews, of course, were monotheists. They believed in one God. The Greeks were polytheists. They believed in many gods. Now, these two ways of viewing the world don't sit very well together. Because if you're a polytheist, we've talked about this before, you think all the gods have to be looked after. And if you ignore some, they're going to get very angry because they're a, they're a pesky lot, really, the gods. And they will visit your community with trouble. And here are these Jews worshipping only one god. So provoking the gods to anger. They did not like this. So what happens? There was growing tension between these two communities. Real growing. And eventually that explodes. And uh, I was reading one uh, historian saying, in BC 43 there was violence between these two groups. Boom! They explode. And uh, they're never really particularly happy um, bedfellows. And even some decades later, Paul rocks up, doesn't he? He rocks up and he preaches. Ah, yeah, no, that's not what I was expecting. There you go. He preaches from this place. This is the Hall of Tyrannus, which is still there in um, modern-day Ephesus. At least that's what we understand it to be. And Paul preached the gospel for about two years from this place. And um, <clears throat> so he's preaching, and what happens when Paul preaches in Ephesus? Who knows? They riot. Okay, so they're still a pretty combustible lot. And they go chanting, and they really kick off these uh, Ephesians. And they are chanting down the high street. They're chanting about their God. And then the authorities have to be called, and they try and drag off some of Paul's companions. I mean, it's just, whoa, what's happening? And for two hours, they're chanting, chanting. Eventually, everything settles down. So they're a, they're a difficult lot, combustible lot. But of course, what's been happening as Paul has been preaching, people are getting saved. Suddenly, you've got people who are Jews who've become believers in Jesus, Christians. But you've also got Greeks who are now believers in Jesus. And you've got these diametrically opposed different people in the same church. Glad I'm not managing that one. Wow, that is a challenge. So no wonder Paul says, I need to write to these Ephesians about the issue of unity. Unity is a pressing subject. In fact, he even uses the word, doesn't he? I urge you 
right at the beginning. I'm urging you to live in a way that will promote unity among you. Because, oh boy, there could be trouble. And you look at what he says. He says to them, I want you to live with all humility. Now, what's been happening? These, both of these communities generally have been looking arrogantly, looking down. We are superior to the other. Here is Paul saying, if you want unity, you're going to have to change your view. And you're going to have to be humble. Humble. This is a big ask. Terry was so helpful, I thought, last week when he talked about uh, humility was not something that a Greek or Roman man did. That was beneath his dignity. No, that was for slaves. They did humility. Not, not a Greek, not a Roman man. Yet here is Paul saying, if you want to preserve unity amongst you, you need to change the traditional attitude in your communities. And you need to come in with humility. He says you've got to be gentle, not violent, not given to, not given to the punch-up and the riots, which is what you're used to. Hey, you've got to be gentle. And then he says, you've got to have patience. What, with that lot? Yeah, yeah, with that lot. They think really differently to you. You're going to have to be patient with them. And then he says, I want you to bear with one another in love. <laughs> this is a big ask. This is very, very countercultural from the way these two communities have lived for decades, probably longer. But he's saying, yeah, you're going to have to change it. It's also urgent. Yeah, there were, we're doing some reading around this. Both of the communities, the Jewish and the Greek communities, did not like the fact that some of these, their folk had become Christians and were now in a church and they were mixing with the other community. Didn't like that. And they were trying to pull it apart, saying, no, no, don't do that. Again, another pressure on unity. And uh, Paul is urgently, as you can see, speaking into the situation here. Because if he doesn't speak to them and they don't change their ways, the likelihood is that this church is going to split down the middle on ethnic lines. Boom. And Paul is saying, I do not want that. And it's as a result of this sort of pressure that's going on that, that Paul then writes chapter 4. And we have this extraordinary chapter talking about Christian unity. And boy, we're the richer for it, aren't we? Good, I'm glad somebody agrees. A couple of thoughts then on that. Hope Church Sevenoaks, we are made up from many now nationalities. I can think of a dozen off the top of my head. And that is wonderful. Do you know, when I think of that, I think of... I think of the book of Revelation. I think of every tribe and tongue around the throne of God. Every one valued. Every nation is valued to the point where Jesus says, I will, well, the word says, Jesus will not return until every people group has had the opportunity for the gospel. Can you see this value that God is saying, every group I love and want. And I think it's a privilege. I was listening, thinking about Gabriel. I was thinking about your testimony the other day, how God spoke to you, and he said, and you were praying about money to come to Cambridge. 
And I love the way you finished it. God supplied, and he said, I know that I'm called here. I'm meant to be here. I think that's what you said, isn't it? I love that. Think of the privilege of that, Hope Church. God has reached out to another nation and said, I want them. And they need to be among you. And boy, he can sing, can't he? And he has a wife that when she prays, the building sort of shakes, doesn't it? Aren't we the richer for it? I think of the Holthausens. God calls you from another nation, didn't he? Clearly, prophetically, leave South Africa, come here. And we're glad you're here. We're really glad you're here. I don't feel in any way, and you're going to correct me here probably, I don't feel there's a problem with unity amongst us at all. I think we celebrate the differences. Can I just say though, let's make sure that remains. Let's make sure that remains. Remember what Paul has called us to, to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Let's not allow disunity to creep in. Let's not say, well, they've got a different worldview to me. I don't understand them. No, no, we're not going to let that happen. Or perhaps even more likely, it'll be theological differences, crowd like us. Well, they believe this. Look, there are lots of debatable matters that we don't have to worry about. There are some things we do, but other things we don't. Come on, Hope Church. And I want to say this to you. If you regularly attend this church, I'm going to commission you today. I want you to be praying regularly about unity. Unity, Disunity is such a devastating thing for churches. Please, if you come here, make sure in your prayer times, you are praying about unity. Will you do that? Yeah? Great. Okay, I've heard that. I'm going to make a little note. So that's the first thing I want to say uh, about that. Second thing is this. I think it's really important that we understand while Paul is strongly encouraging people to live in a way that promotes unity, he is not saying that we should tolerate everything for the sake of unity. He makes it very clear in some of the other letters that the church should not tolerate sin. Not a popular message today generally, but he makes it very clear. He tells these Corinthians, he says this, I, don't, I want you to not even associate with someone that calls themselves a brother, a Christian, yet is sexually immoral or an idolater or a drunkard or a swindler. What? That's not popular today, is it? Sin does not ever produce unity. Sin actually never produces anything good. Sin needs to be confronted for the sake of unity. You've just got to be aware of this because we live in a culture that says you must tolerate everything. No matter how perverse it is, you must accept biblical Christianity, of course. They don't want to tolerate that. But, but, but everything else, you must tolerate. That is not a biblical perspective. Paul clearly does not tolerate. There's one guy in the uh, Corinthian church who has sinned. And he sinned rather spectacularly in a sexual way, beyond even the norms for Corinth. And they were pretty far out. And he just says, put that man out of the church. <laughs> hang on, hang on, Paul. You just said uh, all humility and gentleness and patience. Yeah, put that man out. Uh, and I want you to bear with one another in love. Yeah, see, sin is not tolerated. 
And it's really important that we see that. Okay, so having set out his core requirements, Paul goes on then in the next few verses, and he really hammers something home here. And I want to suggest, I think this is critical to what Christian unity is actually all about. And he says, look, there are seven things that you really need to understand. There are one of. There's only one of these seven things. And he says, there is only one body, that's the church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. He's using this word one like a hammer. Have you, can you see that? One, one. There's only one, one. He doesn't even put the words, there is. There is only one. There is. He's emphasizing this, one, one, one. It's a hammer. One, one. Now, why is he emphasizing this so strongly? Well, he's speaking, of course, predominantly into a Greek and Roman culture. And, of course, there are many religions within the Greek and Roman culture. Many gods, many faiths, many fathers, many spirits. And Paul is standing up, actually, against the culture of his day. And he is saying, no, no. I want to suggest, I think we are under pressure again in our culture today, don't you? We're under pressure to say, no, no, there are many ways to God. There are many different hopes. Some people hope for paradise with virgins. That's their hope. Some people hope for reincarnation. Or if you're an atheist today, what you're hoping for is nothing when you die. And you're in trouble if there's something. We're under pressure again, aren't we? What do you think Paul would have said to our culture? He was standing here. Yeah, he would have said, no, there is only one. I want to suggest to you, I think, understanding the oneness I called it the sort of the oneness, these, where there is only one, is critical to us Christians. Wherever we begin to say there are many of these things, I, I would suggest division will begin to come in. It's really important that we are clear in that in our own hearts. There is only one, one, one. Very easy for us to be tempted into the, well, you know, people, you know, people have their own view of it. They can think that. No, 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 no. Paul is almost shouting this. There is only one. This is what the Bible says. There is salvation in no one else. Oh, that's a bit exclusive, isn't it? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul is making it clear, salvation is found in Christ. Jesus Christ has the power to save. He is saying, no other name does. And if you are saying, yeah, there are many ways, you're kind of helping people into falsehood. No, he's saying, Jesus actually has the power to save. But these other names don't have the power to save. You've got to be clear. It's an awesome responsibility given to us as the church. We've been given the name. It's been read today. The name that is above every other name. The name of Jesus. Wow. Okay. You're still with me. 
I'm pleased, that's good. We would be lonely otherwise. The other thing to notice about uh, this section is that you'll notice all these ones are really uh, uh, kind of banded around members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's also interesting that Paul uses the word one seven times. I don't want to get into too much symbolism, but I think it, it is relevant here. Who knows the biblical significance of the number seven? Perfection. Yeah. So what Paul is saying here is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfect. They are in perfect unity. Perfect unity. There is, <clears throat> there is a oneness about God that I believe the church is meant to reflect. Hence, unity is the relevant. Our, our unity is rooted in his unity. Let's have a quick look at these. So verses 7 to 12. Oh, hello. Right, okay. Um, So having very forcefully explained what there's only one of, Paul then talks about variety. And he talks about the variety of gifts that Jesus has given to his church. So he's making this point. Unity is not uniformity. We don't all have to look the same, be the same have the same passions, same interests. What he says this is, um, yeah, I'm going to move on because of the sake of time. Okay. Okay, I'm just going to move on a little bit here. Paul then, uh, what he does, he looks at the different kind of gifts that there are within the church. And he looks at apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. If I was here 20 years ago preaching, and I was looking at Ephesians 4, pretty much the whole sermon would have been around these verses. Because 20 years ago, we were trying to sort out what these ministries actually were. And um, we were also trying to look at, uh, were they still relevant for today? Do you remember that? Some of you will remember that. Because people had said, well, there aren't modern day apostles, and there aren't modern day prophets. And I think what we found is that the conclusion we come to is, yes, there are. Yeah, there are modern-day apostles and prophets. Terry Virgo, who was here last week, for many years, we have seen him as our apostle over the whole of the New Frontiers family of churches. And he's acted in that way. Now we have Dave Holden, don't we? So, um, yes, they are still relevant for today. Be interested uh, as well as I read that list apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Be really interested to know if your heart was warmed when you looked at any of those areas. I just felt as I was preparing that as I read out the list, God was going to speak to one or two of you. And He was just going to say, I want you to press in to one of those areas. Maybe it's the, the, uh, the prophetic, maybe evangelism. I just feel God is wanting uh, you to, because we need these gifts to be functioning today. Uh, 13 to 16, I'm going to look at now. So it's at this point that Paul 
introduces a new theme into the discussion that we've been having. And he introduces the theme of maturity. And he begins to weave maturity and unity together. And he says the result of these fivefold ministries is going to be greater unity and maturity. He then says this, I want you to come to mature manhood or adulthood. And I want you to know that you can have the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's saying to, the, to these Ephesians, you can walk like Jesus walked. In that kind of stature. I feel like I need to say that to you. Did you know that with greater maturity, you can walk like Jesus? When you come into the room, you can model the same amount of peace, grace, love and power. I think Paul is just trying to inspire these Ephesians at the moment with the maturity that they can have. What is available to them? He's trying to say, come on, you can have this. Isn't it awesome? He's inspiring them so that he can then tell them the truth about where they're currently at. And then he goes on to say, well, actually, really at the moment, he says, you're a bunch of children. You're a bunch of kids. That's your kind of maturity level at the moment, he says, so that we may no longer be children. One of the questions I wanted to ask here was, how mature are you? How mature are you? Difficult question to answer, probably. How mature are you? Let me ask you a question. What this passage is doing is often it's linking uh, disunity and immaturity. Do you often fall out with people? Do you fall out with them a lot? Do, do you take offense easily? And you sometimes, oh, she said that, and oh, I didn't like that. Are you, do you take offense? I think this, uh, this scripture would indicate uh, that's a sign of immaturity. Paul then goes on to say that being spiritually immature, which is, to be honest, where all of us start, he said it isn't just unfortunate, it isn't just neutral, it's actually dangerous. He says it means, if you're immature, it means this, you can be tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea. Now, uh, to, to a Jewish way of thinking, the sea was a dangerous, sinister place. So he's saying you can be tossed around uh, by the sea, by a dangerous thing. You can be pushed around by every wind of doctrine. That's what happens when you're immature. He then goes on to say, you can be susceptible to human cunning and also the craftiness of deceitful schemes. He's saying immaturity leaves you vulnerable. That's what he's saying. It leaves you vulnerable to the muddle in your own head. So to you, it leaves you vulnerable to other people and it leaves you vulnerable to the schemes of the devil. Immaturity is a serious thing. And that's why Paul is saying, come on, let's come out of that. Let's come uh, into maturity. Time for us to grow up. And then he says this, this is how you grow up. This is how you mature. 
he says you need to speak the truth to each other in love. That's how you grow. That's how we will grow as a church. If we have the ability to speak truth and love to each other, we need both of those things. Jesus was referred to as a man full of grace and truth. And I think often these things are quite, almost don't fit together. Grace is harsh, uh, sorry, truth is harsh. And grace is sort of soft and cuddly. Jesus demonstrated both of these key factors together. And we need both of these. I don't think I can remember a time in my lifetime when our society was less open to truth than it ever is now. It doesn't like objective truth. It likes love, or the idea of it, but it doesn't like truth. We need to be a place where we can speak both of those things in here. Otherwise, we risk remaining immature. Paul also says this, we need to grow up, he says, in every way. Could be that you've been a Christian for a number of years, and you have grown. So who's been filled with the Spirit in recent years and has learned to pro prophesy or speak in tongues? Or You may well have grown in that area. What's your patience like? You patient? Or it could be that you've, you've learned to be very pastoral and caring with people. You're very tender. You've learned not to be selfish. And you, you're good with people. When did you last share the gospel? Do you see what I mean? You, you can grow in, in some areas, but not all areas. And this scripture is saying we need to grow up in every way. Final point that I'd want to point out here is Paul makes is about maturity, and he says that um, everyone needs to be functioning in the role that God gives them. He says when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We were asking the question, how mature are you? Another way of answering that would be to ask the question, are you serving? Are you serving? See, the mature serve. Children, when they're very young, you have to do everything for them, don't you? You have to feed them. You have to clothe them. And then as they get a bit older, they learn to do stuff for themselves. And then a shocking moment comes when they get a bit older still. They offer to do stuff for you. And that is quite a moment sometimes. And it may, suddenly makes you think, they're becoming mature. Paul is saying he's looking for a group of people who are like that, mature. People who do things in the church. He says when every part is working properly, every part, then the body will build, uh, build itself up uh, in love. Imagine you had a body where one of the legs didn't work, one of the eyes didn't work, the ears didn't work. The heart was sort of half working. Some of you are saying, yeah, that describes me. No, sorry about that. But imagine a body. It wouldn't be a good body, would it? It wouldn't function as you would want it to. 
And Paul is saying, no, let everyone be involved in the things that you are called to be. I kind of end with this, really. We need help with our kids' workers. We haven't got enough. We've just got enough. And we've got 30-something kids down there, which is great. We need help with that. We also need more musicians to come and serve in the worship team. I want to say, if you are coming along, I would love you to come and step forward and say, yeah, I'll help. And let me say this, it's about your maturity as well. It's not just you doing us a favor, it's about you growing up in Christ. So I would love you to come forward uh, and do that. Okay, let's just uh, close our eyes and I'm going to pray and we're going to finish. Father, I thank you that you are good. Father, I thank you that you are interested in our maturity and our unity. And uh, Heavenly Father, I uh, want to ask you for your blessing in these areas. I pray that you would help us to become more and more unified, more and more gentle in our approach, more and more gracious. Father, I ask you for your great favor on us and help us to grow in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are interested in becoming a Christian or would like to know more about what it is uh, to uh, uh, be in Christ, please do come forward. We'd love to talk to you. And I think tea and coffee is going to be served at the back. Bless you. Have a great week.